Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the NYPD at a crossroads, over-policing or under-policing. Now, we've heard a lot of talk, especially during the administration of the outgoing police commissioner, James O'Neill, about these efforts to improve police community relations, having cops in the neighborhood, having these NCO officers who all they do is work with the uh, community and get to know the community and they give people business cards that have real phone numbers on them with their cell phone numbers and they supposedly deal with any kind of issues that start to come up and they say that this has been an important strategy especially in some communities working with some of the outreach groups and some of the youth groups with the violence interrupters um, and organizations tied in with that and that it's been very very effective Ed, what do you think about that I am not an advocate of that program I think that if we look at what has transpired uh, since O'Neill's been commissioner is we have a much more divisive atmosphere in the communities, a much more distant relationship between cops and community. I think that the you know community policing as described is more of a hocus-pocus magic show where we, we're seeing little photos of people um, you know, of, of cops shooting basketballs with kids and crossing little old ladies across the street. So my question is, when that little old lady's crossing the street, do we say to our partner, hey, get your camera out, take this picture, or do we ask her to come back and do it again? Because that's not real. That the, A lot of this is photographs that we're seeing that are occurring of what's taking place. You're saying like a PR campaign? I, I see it as a PR campaign because the truth of the matter is, and, I, and I'm doing this a long, long time, um, you open a door for a person, you help a little old lady carry a bag. So you just tell some kid in the ball, ball field, hey, throw me the ball, and you throw him a pass. That, that's real. That's because that's what you want to do. I never once asked my pawn, hey, do me a favor, take a picture. We didn't right. do that. And you just came from a place where you got up in the morning and you knew that talking to people walking into a building saying, hey, good morning, how you doing? Things like that were normal. Cops do that every day. But we're documenting it to show the public, see, we're good people too. And I think that taints it. And for O'Neill to say that this is the new direction, um, he, I got 38 years in the NYPD. He has been the worst police commissioner I've seen in my 38 years in the police department. He does not lead. And we have more of a divisive atmosphere amongst cops and community today than I've seen in 38 years, even at the height of stop, question, and frisk. Okay, wow. That's a strong statement. And his I supporters, of course, would say he's driven crime down to historic lows. At the same time, they've also driven down the arrests. Well, you have to look at what's changed in New York City, right? We have a cultural change in New York City overall. You know, Midtown South Precinct on 42nd Street, 9th to 8th Avenue, 95 robberies a month back in the 80s and 90s, a month on one block. Whereas today we have Disney. So, of course, you're not going to have that type of number. That okay, exists. but let me, let me get a comment from our other guests, too, about this, about this uh, community policing thing. Joe Smart, from your perspective as a member of the community and an activist, do you feel that over the, you know, since, really since the Eric Garner incident, because that's when they did this retraining of the police, of police officers who were out on the streets, that's when the, the federal court order, right, Phil, came, came down that they had to, or consent decree, or... Well, Garner was what in fourteen, twenty fourteen, and then that came so like twenty thirteen, th yeah, right, right before prior, it, right before as they were enacting all those things. Right. Josmar, do you feel like this? Do you feel like th th things have improved over the last since Eric Garner? No, I think people are having you know 
over time, the stop and frisk, then the broken windows, and the churro, churro uh, incidents, the, the Eric Garners, the Akai girls, people, those types of things tend to wear on people. And so I think that what's caused this, is the, uh, the division between the community and the police is because there's historically been a division. Uh, people, this isn't a new conversation we're having. We're rehashing old conversations. Uh, I do want to say that, coincidentally, I do agree with Ed about community policing being a public relations stunt. It's not the first time it was rolled out. It was rolled out in 94. It was attempted in the 1980s. Police officers, and one thing I'll agree with uh, with uh, the police unions is that police officers are not social workers. They're not people who should be going out and doing these kinds of, you know, uh, crossing little ladies across the street or, or, or dealing with people with mental health issues. There are other alternatives for that. And I think the problem is that we keep trying to push policing as the solution for everything, whether it's community policing, neighborhood policing, precision policing, this, that policing. But it doesn't have to be policing for every instance. Uh, it shouldn't be the solution for every social problem or issue. Phil, what, Phil, what about that? But to the extent that in practice and like logistically right now, we're not there and we do have police. I, I think it is important for the police that are on the beat, that are, you know, uh, within these neighborhoods, within these communities, to get to know the people within the communities. You know, my brother-in-law is an officer uh, in South Carolina. We have a lot of these conversations about just kind of how his approach is to any call, to any assault, to any to any potential, you know, call that he has to, you know, respond to within really a community that he grew up in. So like kind of in making those calls, there's when he's responding to those calls, there's an understanding of most likely what it is that he's going to see. There's an understanding in terms of like how to deal with the various community members within that community, how to talk people down, how to maneuver, like just to basically take out cultural that element. Cultural competency, you would call it. Thank you, cultural competency, so that these officers are coming into these situations without like this fear of the unknown, right? Without this fear of, oh my gosh, like, you know, I don't know these people, what could ultimately happen to me? Because it's that, I think, that a lot of times leads to these split-second judgment calls that go the wrong way. That go left. What, but what about, what about the whole, the, the fear of the community of the police? Because coming off that decade of heavy stop and frisk, the federal judge, you know, the federal judge that ruled it unconstitutional. Judge A lot Flores. of what have been touted as reforms of NYPD, do you believe those were done because they want to evolve or that was done because they had to comply with the federal judge? They had to. Whether they wanted to or not, like, they had to. They had put themselves in a position where they had to, and the city had to. I mean, the city was already bleeding a lot of money for a lot of these false arrest lawsuits and a lot of these, um, you know, excessive force, you know, lawsuits, things along those lines. They, they were put in a position where they had to, and I think that now in 2019, as opposed to where we were, say, back in 2013, 2014, does the community trust that the police have come to a point where they understand a lot of the harms physically and emotionally that were kind of extolled upon the community during that time. And to the extent that there hasn't been that accountability, that's where I think you still have a, a bit of that us versus them kind of And speaking mentality. of the us versus them, Ed, when you saw those videos of the water being doused on the police officers and the police officers just walking, what did you think? That wasn't restraint. You know, I know people say, and and we heard this from the NYPD officers showed they restrained themselves. They didn't escalate that the incident. That is a total lie. That reaction from the cops was fear of responding back, and something going wrong. Someone hitting their head, getting arrested, or a bad video where you go to make an apprehension, and it became ugly because it's been on the heels of the Pantaleo decision, and the whole Eric Gardner case. 
And we now have a paralyzed police department. And I've challenged the NYPD leadership to go get a set of handcuffs and go out to each precinct and make an arrest themselves and set the standard to lead in the right direction rather than sending a message to the cops that they're afraid to go and address you know, a situation like that. And even the people in the community that witnessed those water buckets see that as something that's wrong. Real quick, Josemar, what do you think about that when you saw those videos of them dousing the cops with water? I mean, I can tell you what the reaction. Come to the mic, please. I can tell you what the reaction in my neighborhood was. The reaction in my neighborhood, unfortunately, was a lot of cynicism because people were like, "Well, Eric Garner died, and and you know, Kai Gurley died, and a lot of people have died. Police officers having water thrown on them isn't something that I would tell my son to do. But in the in the long term scope of of who's been abused between the relationship between police and community, uh, it's not police officers having their uniforms wet. Uh, you know, no one's advocating for people getting into fights with police officers. I don't, I don't think, and, and having wars. But I think people want um, there to be some sort of accountability, and I think that that's kind of like the underlying kind of issue that's that, never been really addressed. That, that kind of uh, pushes people to have that feeling towards resentment towards police officers. All right, we're going to talk about accountability when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Stay with us. New York City is Miguel, and you're tuning to the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real people, real issues, and real politics. Only on Hot 97. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on the NYPD. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both Hot 97 and Fox 5, free of charge on my website, lisaevers.com. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Now, in this episode, we're talking about the NYPD at the crossroads over-policing or under-policing? What's really going on right now and what's next? Now, the present NYPD enforcement activity against churros vendors and food vendors for selling their wares in the subways is raising questions about how cops are doing their jobs. It comes at a time when many New Yorkers wonder why police can't take action against apparently dangerously disturbed individuals who we've seen punching people, pushing people into subway cars, and generally intimidating people, as well as incidents of aggressive, of overly aggressive panhandling. This also comes at a time when the NYPD says overall crime continues to be at historic record lows. But what's really going on, especially with the subways, especially with so many people feeling like police are not really making arrests for marijuana possession, they're not making arrests for fair beating, so why pick on these vendors? That's what we're talking about now with our panel. Joining me is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense and civil rights attorney and also the founder of the Philip Hamilton Law Firm. Phil, great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Joe Smart Trujillo. He's a writer and activist and the co-organizer uh, co of the Swipe It Forward campaign. Joe Smart, great to have you with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Ed Mullins. He's the president of the Sergeant Benevolent Association. He's also an NYPD sergeant himself assigned to Brooklyn South Detectives. Ed, great to have you with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. And I also want to mention that we invited the NYPD to send a representative to be with us for this panel, but they declined our invitation. So let's get right to it. Ed, as you look around, you've been a police officer for many, many years. What do you see happening? Overall, what's your big picture take on what's happening in New York? Well, we're kind of at a crossroad right now. I think that, um, you know, I came in 1982, so I, I've seen a city when it was 2,700 homicides and under 300 homicides. 
Um, but what we're seeing is that we have a, a city that many residents believe is safe. We're being told the numbers are down, crime is down, but there's a perception, is a feeling that the city isn't safe. And we're seeing, um, you know, incidents of shootings, uh, homicides are starting to spike, the rapes are starting to spike. Uh, we see minor crimes that, you know, people are dealing with every day, riding the subways, the the woman that was pushed up against the train and, you know, hits her head off the uh, side of the train. Some of it is, you know, not real hardcore criminals, but um, people you know, that need help. People and are that are mentally it, right? ill and are out there. And we're seeing, um, you know, minor crimes urinating in the streets and things along those lines, which are very disturbing to people. We describe those as the quality of life crimes. And let's talk about those quality of life crimes, because, Josmar, in, in terms of in terms of your activism, your writing and being outspoken on a lot of these issues, coming out of the era of stop and frisk, which was very oppressive in communities of color, where do you see us being at now with the police and police relations? Because we see, you know, we see people dumping water buckets on cops. We also see enforcement activity in areas like with the vendors that people might not expect. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, especially people who've come of age in the last couple of years of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's a question of the legitimacy of what policing as an institution is and when when and where it's appropriate. Uh, in the case of the Chudo vendors, a lot of people were outraged because they don't see Chudo uh, uh, women, mostly uh, immigrant women, as threats to public safety. Um, when Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes, allegedly, uh, people didn't really see that as a public safety threat. Uh, and so the question is, why do we have to have police in some of these low-level uh, nonviolent situations when there are alternatives to policing? And so people are starting to reframe the question of when policing, uh, whether you're talking about quality of life policing or broken windows policing, is really appropriate and when there are other alternatives. If there's public urination, can there be more public bathrooms? If people are hopping the turnstiles, are there economic uh, forces that we, economic solutions that we can come uh, to the table and say, let's get help for these people. Uh, when there's mental health, is it better to send a police officer or someone who might have mental health training? And so the idea of like finding alternatives to policing is something that young people, especially now who've come, uh, you know, who've come of age, uh, are now starting to take more seriously. All right, Phil. When you look around, and as our, our guest said, is this a time? Are we at a point now where, as as a society, at least here in New York City, where we have to reframe what is the real role of police officers? Is that what's going on? No, absolutely. And I think that's a continuing discussion we've been having, I would say, over the course of at least the last 10 years, um, kind of going towards that latter end of Bloomberg's uh, mayoral ship and then coming into de Blasio. I mean, that question has definitely been there. I have seen a lot of changes uh, in within the courts. I remember, you know, I used to be at the Bronx Defenders. So, you know, you take any given summer Sunday evening uh, at arraignments on 161st Street back in 2009, 2010. I mean, it was just packed when you would go back into those cells with people that had been arrested for, you know, public urination or trespassing, all of these low-level, you know, broken windows-oriented offenses that, you know, now these days, um, you know, I'm not one to sit here and say where I haven't seen change or where I haven't seen positive change, where there has been some. It's just not like that as much anymore. I'm not going to say clearly that people still aren't being arrested for crimes that, you know, could we have some alternatives, as you discussed, uh, to those people being arrested, the churros fenders, um, you know, those who are jumping the turnstile. They, you know, there's no reason why at the end of the day you should be sitting in a, a cell for 48 hours, 24 hours along those lines, just for you know wanting to get on a train that you just couldn't afford. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm just not seeing it happen as much as I was 10 years ago. So to that end, 
um, I can say, sure, we've seen progress, but it, do we still have, you know, more improvement to go? Absolutely. So. All right, we're going we're gonna to talk about that as well. Now, uh, we, we heard Mike Bloomberg, uh, the former mayor, Mike Bloomberg, who was the architect or authorized the whole stop and frisk uh, campaign during his uh, mayoralty, apologize to communities of color for what he did, which basically resulted in the false arrests, if you want to call it that, or false stops, right? Illegal stops is the way. Illegal stops <laughs> of about 2.5 million mostly black and Latino men. And Ed, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think we need to look at Bloomberg in the totality of what occurred. And he's not the architect of stop and frisk. This was done under Bratton. Okay. When Bratton came in, it started with uh, broken windows police, and as Phil just brought up, and this thing snowballed. And where it snowballed, and the cops are taking the bad rap for this. And when I say the cops, I mean the people in the street, not the policymakers, because the policymakers the cops deserve are out the there bad answering rap. the 911 call right. when somebody goes, "Hey, they and, just fired and this, a gun." This all escalated as a result of Comstat and number-driven uh, policing. That's where this. Escalated the famous the, quota debates. The quota the cops debates. were giving the quotas, and like, I don't care what's happening, you get me some arrests. Precinct right? commanders were being brought into Comstat, answering for the crimes in their communities. And if you had a spike in crime, you were humiliated amongst all your peers. So some overzealous genius came up with the idea of, let's create a sheet to track, stop, question, and frisk. And this became no different than a summons quota. In the end, we ended up with millions of stops. Now, stop, question, and frisk is a good tool. A traditional police. If it's used in accordance to Terry versus Okay, Ohio. but obviously it wasn't because a federal judge ruled that it was unconstitutional. Josmar, in term, just real quick before we go to break, in terms of your take on the whole, this whole reversal on stop and frisk. Uh, I mean, for people who were stopped and frisked and had their dignity and humanity robbed of them at the moment, I mean, the apology doesn't come with any compensation. It doesn't come with, uh, you know, a time machine to go back and undo uh, what happened. So I think it's something that Bloomberg thought was good for him politically. But how good it is, is it for communities of color right to endure it? Uh, I don't see any benefit for them. Phil, what do you think about that? No, I, I think he's absolutely right. I, you know, I think at that time there just wasn't that thought. I mean, when you talk, when you go to that issue of humanity, just, you know, how... Number one, just if we're not even going to talk about the legal, how embarrassing that could be. But what you talked about earlier in terms of, you know, what the police were doing was unconstitutional. You know, they were not you know, looking at people that they suspected of having just committed crimes or that were... Or responding to a radio call that something had happened. Right. They were just seeing men of color walking down the street. And because of, you know, the, 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 the pressure to, you know, fill the summonses and the pressure to fill the quotas and things along those lines were, you know, just putting people up against a wall with no you know, regard or what so have you for their humanity. And it ultimately ended up costing the city a lot of money. And it also, and, and you know, as the, as the, as the, as the PBA, Pat Lynch said, he goes, it also, it also really soured the relationship with the community in very big ways it, it that did. we're still doing today. We need to, we need to come back to this. Um, coming up, if crime is down, why are summonses in the subway going up? That's coming up next. Stay with us. What's up, y'all? It's your boy, Roe Timmy. You're listening to Street Soldiers with Lisa Evans. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the NYPD at a crossroads 
over-policing versus under-policing. Joining me for this conversation, Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense and civil rights attorney. He's, excuse me, he's also the founder of the Philip Hamilton Law Firm. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Josemar Trujillo. He's a writer and activist and co-organizer of the Swipe It Forward campaign. Josemar, great to have you with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Ed Mullins. He's the president of the SBA, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, and he's also an NYPD sergeant for many years, assigned now to the Brooklyn South Detective Squad. Um, Ed, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Again. All right. The NYPD says year to date, because you know how they do their me their measurements and their their numbers, from this so far this year in 2019 compared to the same time period in 2018, subway crime is down 3.6%. They say that arrests in the transit system, within the transit system, are down 23%. But they say year to date there's over 20,000 more summonses being issued. And that the ex ex um, explanation for that, that they say, is that the there are fewer arrests because now you don't get arrested for f fair beating, and but people do get summonses, and that's why the summonses are up. Phil, what do you think about that? I think that it can potentially be correlated with the fact that, okay, now you know, no longer are the DA's offices prosecuting the, the fair beaters, and so then the question then becomes, okay, so then where do we, let's just be frank, where do we get that money? Right, because generally with those summonses, a lot of times you'll have the fines, you'll have the fees that come along with any of those adjudications or you know convictions. Um, but to that end, I, I think that the questions that a lot of people have is why ultimately are a lot of these resources being put into, like you said, targeting these nonviolent, otherwise just regular nice people, right, when we talk about the churls vendors or what have you, not those that are dealing with the mental health issues, but even to the extent that you're dealing with a lot of those people that have the mental health issues within the subway, the question then becomes, well, you know, what can we do better as a city to ultimately get them from having to live with on the trains or live within or the Or roam the streets without the help. Streets, right. Right, without help. So I think it leaves open a lot of those questions. And I think, you know, in terms of just like that rise in summits, it also just leaves open, why are we putting all of this energy and all of this focus into this over-policing in lieu of actually fixing a lot of the issues that we see within the well, subway. Oh, Josmar, in, ter in terms of the over-policing in the subway, a lot of people would, I mean, it's kind of unspoken code of the streets. People would know you're not going to try to sell anything on the platform at the Rockefeller Center Station or Grand Central Station or any of those major hubs. And East New York is a major hub, but it's also, you know, in Brooklyn. It's further out. And people were going like, wait a minute, why are they bothering these women selling these churros fried dough, which are fried dough sticks? <laughs> Basically, they're selling four for three dollars. This is their way of, you know, making a living. Why are they being bothered? Do you feel like this is over policing? Yeah, and I think it's also based in a history of the of New York City of always punching down towards people who sometimes are just making money for their feed their families. Sometimes are poor working class people, and it's much easier to be able to punch down towards someone who you don't think will be able to advocate for themselves or speak up for, or people won't uh, won't rally around. Uh, than to engage in real issues. The MTA, for example, has real financial mismanagement issues, and it's much easier for them to blame a Trudeau lady or to blame fair beaters instead of pointing the fingers at themselves and saying, why are we mismanaging state funds? And, and wasting so much money, as, as some people say. And money that could be spent on subsidized metro cards or, or giving these women the opportunity to start their own businesses or something like that. Okay. And when you when you saw what happened with the with the, with the Trudeau's vendors and this, this young man selling candy 
in Harlem. What do you think about those kind of things? Here's what I think. I don't think the issue is about over-policing. If we don't want to enforce those laws, the laws should be changed. Who wants someone sitting in front of their building playing loud music in the middle of the night? And you can say, well, that's mine. I'm enjoying my music. That's okay. But there's a law for that, okay? Do I think enforcing, you know, a woman selling Cheetos on the subway is a real, I think it's stupid, to be honest with you, that we're, we're enforcing stuff like that. However, I just rode the train yesterday, and on the platform are two people selling, you know, these items, and it does create an obstruction along the platform. Me? I walk around it. I'm used to it. I'm a city kid. I know what it's about. Another guy playing a violin. So the question is, do we want this on the subway or not? But to call it as over-policing, if the law is there and someone complains, the police have to respond to that. If you don't want the police to respond to that and the elected officials who are complaining about it, then change the law. City council can do that like this. It's that up fast. To, it's not a state law. All they've got to do is start to write it, deal with the MTA, home rule message goes to Albany. If they wanted to take those steps to do it, they could do it. But to boot it on onto the police to say, well, you're just picking on some lady, you know, who's trying to make a living. I get it. I get she's trying to make a living. I get that. Okay. And, and I think most cops do, but once someone complains, it has to be addressed. If, if look, red light summons is, we could say, uh, just a nuisance to people, but until someone gets killed, right? Bike lanes, right. you know, we're enforcing someone riding a bicycle in New York city. But if we don't enforce that law, and some person crossing the street gets run over by a bike, they actually could die. And I've seen that happen. Right. And if you don't want that law enforced... You're saying, you're saying change the law, Joseph Mar, what about then that? Then change the law. Well, I think there's, there's also an issue of something called hyper-policing. It's not under, it's not over. It's you hyper-police certain communities for years on end. I live in East Harlem now. Before that, I lived in the Rockaways, a predominantly white area of the Rockaways. On the boardwalk there, I would see continually underage drinking, fighting happening... And those people, and, and these, were, these were oftentimes the, the children of firefighters and, and police officers, weren't getting arrested. They weren't getting bothered uh, because there was an understanding in that neighborhood that they weren't going to face those kinds of consequences. Now that I live in Harlem, two kids can't get into a fist fight without 10 police officers and three squad cars uh, pulling up. So there's a hyper-policing that's, that's happened in that's certain That's a different scenario. Let's talk about a kid in Harlem drinking, doing the same thing as a kid in Rockaway, okay, as you just described. If that's the scenario, I agree with you. Two kids fighting, we don't know what that is when we show up. We have no idea what that is. Okay? And common sense policing, two kids fighting, knock it off, go your separate ways, that's the end of it. Right? But that's common sense policing. But we don't know that until we get there. That call comes over 911 as an assault in progress, which makes that a priority call. So we have to have an understanding, and this is what's really missing, is an understanding in the community and in the policing, right? Police need to understand that a guy drinking a beer, sitting on a step, is not necessarily criminal. He lives in a building, and really, what's the crime to that? I get that. Most cops do. But the policy, if it comes from headquarters, is we're going to enforce but these But 22,000 more summonses year to date. In the subway. In the, in the subway system. Phil, the, the NYPD's explanation that they gave me when I was talking with them to, to try to get information for the show and doing research, they say because there's fewer murders, because there's fewer rapes, because there's fewer of those seven index crimes, you know, robbery, the, the major crimes that, that they use f 
to uh, compute the They're only the counting the index crimes. Uh, index and crimes. There's other crimes. So when they say crime is uh, let's, down, let's talk, let's talk about. I want to talk about that. the index crimes. You're not right. getting a fair number of victims. Right. But they say that the they say that the since those major crimes are down, the police have more time to deal with these quality of life offenses, to go after fair beaters, to go after people selling things in the subway, to go after that type of thing. What do you think of that? Do you buy that? It, it's logical, um, but it also kind of plays into part, I, I would say, it, 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 kind of like a combination of what both of the guests have said thus far. Like Whether it's hyper-policing, over-policing, I think we definitely live in an over-criminalized state, right? So to the extent that we have, okay, taken care of some of the issues with respect to the index crimes, pretty much you can think of any activity outside, for the most part, you can look within the administrative code or within the penal law and find some way at a minimum to get probable cause or reasonable suspicion that a crime has been committed. And so I think in that respect, I would agree that the legislature, that the city council needs to kind of take a look at the fact that we have too much just regular human activity, particularly within this city, that's over-criminalized. Like, I get it. Yeah, you might be walking on the platform and maybe there's ultimately an obstruction that is the woman selling churros, but this is New York City. New York City in and of itself right. is an obstruction, okay? It is like the part of being a <laughs> New Yorker, and to the extent that like don't we're get us started on all the con all the construction things that go out into the streets and block off the sidewalks okay. and okay. and all that. Don't get. It. I mean, even you, are, you and I were talking about just making it here to the studio today. Just a lot of the Which obstructions we ran into. Exactly. Like I, I wouldn't mind some of that being criminalized, right? So like, why are we picking this over that? Like when they just shut down blocks and the guys there with an orange flag that they but bought. It, but at the end of the day, these are, these are people's lives, and I oh, well, think absolutely. to the extent that the absolutely. police still, nevertheless, even if it's coming from headquarters have discretion as to ultimately who how to handle can this be arrested and that's what one of the vendors told me he he said that 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 was with the the woman that was in that video he said he goes most of the cops he goes they tell us to just move along mm -hmm. and if we move along you know and they finish their patrol or whatever of the platform we move along and then then nothing happens they happens don't take our our products a and good majority of time but that woman had been told to leave has 10 prior incidents and she's chronic to that. Right. Okay, so my question is, what would you like for the police to do? We don't have to enforce fair beaters. We don't right. have to do that. We can put a cop on this side of the turnstiles, and when someone doesn't pay, say, go over to the booth and pay. Right. When they say no and they run, what do you want us to do? Right. Okay? Because now we go and we get in an altercation. And, right. and there's a fight, and somebody splits their head, or somebody dies, or, or the guy jumps the, uh, the tracks thing, to right. get away, and he gets hit by a train. Because the guy's late for a job interview or something. And the headlines read, cop killed, fair beater, who jumps in train. That's not really what happened, but this is the ramifications. And so, that's the reality that we're in. We're going to continue talking right. about that, too. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. Yo, this is Shaggy, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people. Only on Hot 97. Shug it up. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the NYPD at a crossroads, over-policing versus under-policing, and what's next. Joining me for this conversation is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense and civil rights attorney. He's also the founder of Philip Hamilton Law. Phil, great to have you with us again. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Josmar Trujillo. He's a writer and activist. He was a co-organizer of the Swipe It Forward campaign. Josmar, great to have you with us again. Hey, Lisa. 
Thank you so much. Also joining us is Ed Mullins. He's the president of the SBA. That's the Sergeant Benevolent, Sergeant's Benevolent Association. He's also an NYPD sergeant for many years, um, assigned to the Brooklyn South Detective Squad. Ed, great to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Ed, in terms of the sense of lawless, people feel a sense of lawlessness now, even if it's not real or... I think it's real. I think that what people are feeling... Uh, I don't say it's real in a sense that everyone's being robbed, shot, and raped out there, but I think there's a sense of lawlessness for what most people describe as the quality of life type of crimes. But I, I'm going to raise that bar into more misdemeanor type of crimes. You know, the, the, the minor assaults that we see happening, the minor thefts that don't get carried as real felonies. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the statistics are on that and, you know, there's a but perception. you say we can't trust the, the way they, they compute the crime the crime stats. I, I well the NYPD just admitted that they only count the seven index crimes on a subway for the crime. Right. So you know if, if you get pushed down on a subway and your injury is in a serious physical injury, um, that's not a felony assault. So that doesn't count in, in that It's not going to be crime. in the count. Right. So, for example, if somebody has their wallet lifted. It's only a, a, a could be a petit larceny, even though it's a grand larceny from a person. It all depends on how that interpretation is made by the complainant or by the officer taking a report. Um, we, we now have supervisors overseeing these reports when they come into the station houses. All right. I just want to, in terms of the, do you, do you feel in East Harlem a sense of lawlessness? Uh, no, I mean, the the long-term trends of New York City crime are everything is going down, including the low-level uh, crimes. Um, I, I also, like, question, like, what is people's sense of what lawlessness is or sense of disorder, right? Like, in certain neighborhoods in New York City, there's demographic changes going on. Gentrification is happening. For example, in Williamsburg, uh, when I was a kid, Williamsburg, you'd have loud block parties going on, and that was perfectly normal, and that was actually order for that neighborhood. For right. Puerto, for Puerto Rican people in Williamsburg, Part of the loud parties was right. your culture. That was quality of life, not against quality of life. And so maybe now in Williamsburg, when you see young urban professionals moving in, they don't want loud music. And so it depends on whose version of order you're talking about. So some people's version of lawlessness or disorder might be different than others. Ed's version, of, you know, Ed might see uh, certain things on the subway that I don't see and, and vice versa. So it depends on who you ask. And I think it depends on cultural conceptions as well. Phil, what, Phil, what about that? No, beautifully put. Um, you know, I, I think that it, 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 it rings me back to Probably the first or second year out of law school, I was uh, living in Harlem and I was living on 148th and Broadway. And like, look, we were just dealing with the fact that the city was rapidly gentrifying, you know. And, you know, there would be the guys like on the, you know, block, on the stoops, listening to the music and things along those lines. And as the community started to change, you would literally, literally like at night hear these riffs of people saying, I have to go to work in the morning, turn that down. And like right. all of these things where then the people on the, you know, stoop would just be like, then go back downtown. Right. You know, why'd you move up here? Like, to the extent <laughs> that you're having these kinds of issues. But that, to the extent that we live in this over-criminalized society, could be a reason for then someone to call 911 or call 311, have officers Because the police have to respond when they right. get a call. That's the point that, yeah, yeah, that's the point like that somebody said, Or somebody sends them a, little, a video right. or tweets out a video and right. adds them or whatever. They have to respond to that. But what, what about this whole issue of, of so many things now being, uh, people being issued summonses for? Because... People, a lot of people just, oh, I'm getting a piece, I'm getting a piece of paper. That's nothing. I can just ignore it. To the legislature's credit, to the city council's credit, I think that these were steps that were being made 
towards like the understanding that we were dealing with mass incarceration, towards like a lot of these criminal justice reform minded efforts. And like, let's be frank, just to, you know, the, the bail reform, the response, I think, in many respects is to keep people from going to jail, to right. keep people from lingering in Rikers, like all of those like like umbrella for issues two years we used waiting to for a trial because they have no no started because bail of this, money right. or because of overcharging right like because right. of the overcharging maybe that you know what ultimately came in as a felony back in 2010 and 2011 that shouldn't have now is coming in as a misdemeanor or as a summonsable offense so that you're not having a repeat Khalif Browder situation so that you're not having these kinds of situations such that I think the city is just if they're willing to err, I give credit to being willing to err on the side of not having someone unnecessarily locked up for periods of time. And, you know, to the extent that the summonses are now kind of coming in more for like these lower level offenses, maybe five years ago they would have come in as misdemeanors or felonies. So I think that's also what it, you see in the That's a change uptick. that's happening yeah. in the uptick in the summonses. Right, right. And, and what about that with the summonses for police officers? How do they feel about writing, writing all these summonses? Police officers never wanted to write summonses, even back in the days of the, the heavy quotas for, uh, you know, traffic tickets and parking tickets. Um, they never wanted to do that. But that there was quotas. And there's no denying anybody tells you there weren't as lying to you. There were quotas. Um, so and most of those co quotas were in, in communities of color. No, that's not true. I, I, I didn't always work in communities of color. I worked in Gramercy Park area, which is today is really a nice area. I worked right here in this precinct. Uh, and the quota was always the same. In fact... When I was temporarily assigned up into Harlem, um, they had an agreement with the community that you could double park your car to the other side of the street so the street sweepers can come through. I didn't know that. And when I was there with a bunch of rookies, we wrote something like 30 summonses for. Oh, no. So I didn't know that. <laughs> I had no idea. As a rookie, right. Right, because in, in Manhattan, south down here, um, your quota was 20 parkers and five movers. Now that's changed, but there's still, you got to write <laughs> something. Parkers and, yeah, but yeah. see, that goes back to that point of discretion right. you know, that we were talking about earlier. Like you said, yeah, it's on the books. Yeah, it can ultimately be enforced, but that discretion. But it was common sense policing based on experienced um, you know, cops and, and, and supervisors. The, and the politics the was or not like what it for is church, today. Like when right. they do it for a church service. Right, exactly. And, and some of these Funerals, parked. Josemar, what, what do you think, you know, because we're, we're entering a new decade, entering, we'll have a new police commissioner uh, starting that decade with a new police commissioner, Dermot Shea. What do you think the, the New York City Police Department needs to do to really heal those those wounds with communities of color that are still open, as you that you say are still open from Eric Garner, from you know, leftover from stop and frisk, changing lifestyles, changing demographics of neighborhoods where people live with their, you know, their, their parents lived in that neighborhood, their grandparents lived in that neighborhood? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my take is a little bit different in that um, I, I, mean, I always like to point out that the budget for police today is the highest it's ever been in the history of New York City. Um, this mayor, even though he's often put out as being anti-police, expanded the NYPD for the first time, uh, I think, in over a decade. So there is no under-policing in the sense of how we spend our tax dollars. More money is being spent on police officers and policing in general, surveillance and a bunch of other techniques. Um, and that's money that we can't spend on certain other areas. So I'm not so concerned with who, who the police commissioner is, police community relations. Police, have, unfortunately, in my experience, have told me what our relationship is. And it's not one based on respect. Uh, has been my experience. So I think that for people to move ahead, they start thinking about our budget as our priorities and how much we spend on policing tells uh, tells you a lot about how the city views it. If we've arrested fair beaters for decades and decades and decades and people are still 
beating the fair, it tells you that there has to be a, another solution, or we can't just keep beating our heads uh, against the wall and trying to and trying to make policing the solution of it. Because every time a cop stops somebody for for beating the fair to write him a summons, that can't be a nice experience. It's not a nice experience, but again, it goes back to what I said earlier, and, and I think you make a good point: is that you know if you don't want us to do that and change the law. Right. We can't have it both ways. But when you change that law and said we're not going to enforce fair beaters, we just gave away free subway rides to everyone. And right. that's balanced across the board even for the rich people, right? Right. We can't be selective. We can't be, you can play your radio loud at night, you're allowed to smoke pot, you're not allowed to smoke pot. So the question is, what society do we want? And and then you've got to have some common sense policing. I've dumped many cans of beer without writing a summons. I've done it. Okay. Many people had to throw out their marijuana cigarettes when when I came by or it was just common sense to not make that arrest and spend the rest of the night over a joint doing paperwork and making an arrest. Was that what you were supposed to do? No, but that was common sense policing. And but you can't have it both ways, because when you refuse to comply, we now have a resisting issue. And that becomes a bigger problem. And that can become an ugly situation. Absolutely. Phil, look, Phil, looking ahead, is there anything that needs to be changed with the laws, um, you know, with the laws or that that can improve, will help improve community and police relations, do you think? I think just, like, for instance, so now we have all of the attention surrounding, like, the drill gender and, and what have you, right? So I think in that respect, to the extent that the attention is there, I think city council, like, as the media kind of, like, puts the spotlight on these issues, city council, state legislature, you have to kind of start taking even the next steps. Great, we got the bail reform. Great, we got some of these packages in. But it's really time to start looking, and not to be redundant, Lisa, but it's time to start looking, you know, at the fact that we just live in a very overcriminalized society, and that it kinds of it kind of puts at issue when we talk about what kind of society do we want to live in. There is like a subthread of just the fact that society is made up of many different cultures, right? And to the extent that you know, in one community you know, you can kind of like walk past or just let it go. And then in the other, what you can't. What goes in one it, community doesn't, that individualization may be, may be going out the window too right. with all this. Well, I want to thank all of you for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Philip Hamilton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for Joseph having me. Josemar Trujillo, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And Ed Mullins, thank great you, to have you with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. And let's push for peace.